Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Stephen Mandis, who has a new book out called What Happened to the USMNT, The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. We've had some great guests lately, including Dwayne DeRosario and Brendan Dunlop, Emma Hayes and Christina Uncle. So check those out. Now, here's my interview with Stephen Mandis. Our guest now is Stephen Mandis. He's the author of a really interesting new book called What Happened to the USMNT, The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game, written with Sarah Parsons Walter. Stephen, congrats on the book. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, lots to talk about here. I, I have read the book. Uh, I, I've enjoyed it. it. There's a lot to digest. Uh, but first off, I feel like listeners should know, like, what is your background and, and what have you written in the past about the sport of soccer? Sure. My background is um, I had worked at uh, Goldman Sachs um, in investment banking and private equity and proprietary trading. Um, I also had worked as a senior advisor to McKinsey and Company during the financial crisis. And then I went back to school to get a PhD um, and become a professor at Columbia Business School. And my dissertation called What Happened in Goldman Sachs was read by uh, Real Madrid executives, unbeknownst to me, who really enjoyed the book. And then out of pure coincidence, I met them and we became friends and they explained to me how Real Madrid worked. And I was not a fan of soccer or European soccer. I didn't know much about Real Madrid at all. And so they allowed me to write a book uh, called um, The Real Madrid Way, which explains how they run the club. And I did that in collaboration with um, David Stern, who was form who was the uh, chairman of the NBA, a commissioner of the NBA, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and uh, Billy Bean. And so that was a really fun project. And then that led to another book about what happened to Syria. Why was Syria so great in the 80s and 90s? And then why did it decline in the 2000s? And why I thought it was going to come back. And the U.S. men's national team, obviously, it's a soccer topic. It's a different topic. Why did you want to write this book about the U.S. men's national team? Well, I, when I was talking to people in soccer, um, they would always ask me, why, why are the women so good? What happened to the men? Um, I also happened to meet an under, um, and I can't remember which year it was, a coach who said, why are you writing about Italian soccer and what happened to them? Why don't you write about American soccer um, since you live in the United States? And I said, that was actually a really good question. Um, and I had some access from the fact that I had met Sunil Galati, who also teaches at Columbia uh, University as well, and had helped with the Real Madrid book. And so I had some access, and Carlos Cordero worked at Goldman Sachs and I had met him a few times, so there was some access there. Interesting. Sunil Gulati and Carlos Cordero, both former presidents of U.S. soccer, huge impacts on the sport here. You know, book titles and subtitles are always interesting as someone who's written books myself. Uh, your subtitle is The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. Why did you and your publisher choose The Ugly Truth in describing a book with, about the U.S. men's national team? Um, I think there were just things about uh, soccer that people didn't either recognize or don't really understand or appreciate. And may would think that they were ugly or not glamorous about the game, but they're just um, there's just data or facts that people would find interesting. 
So the most ugly truth that I, that I found fascinating was is that there was a perception in American soccer that you had to play in a European way, that people idolized this European ideal. Um, and then you know, I go meet a coach like uh, Diego Simeone at Atletico Madrid, who basically explains to me that you can win in a way that maybe some people don't appreciate or like because there's not lots of goals and glamour and everything else, but they grind it out and they win. And so that to me is like winning ugly, but they're very, very effective at it. Um, and in many ways, many people root for them because of their grit and their identity of grinding that out. And they represent sort of a group of people that identify with that. Interesting because Diego Simeone, who may be about to win the title again with Atletico Madrid, is somebody I've thought of over the years. I know he doesn't speak great English, but as somebody who could coach the U.S. men's national team, and my argument has always been he sort of fits his way of playing sort of fits the U.S. men's national team identity over the years. And I want to get to identity here in a little bit because that's a big part of your book. Um, but I also, I, I remember you telling me, because you and I have, have had a conversation before a few months ago, which I really enjoyed, got me really excited about reading your book. And I remember you telling me that you did a lot of interviews for this book. Now, I'm curious because who were those interviews with? How many were there? And how did you use those interviews to inform this book? Because like in reading the book, I see there are some direct quotes with names on them, but not that many. And I'm wondering, how did all that work? Sure. So all the quotes you see in the book are actually quotes from publicly available sources. So they're from other interviews that were publicly available. And the reason for that is, is I, um, I consider myself an academic, not a journalist. And so when I speak to people or ask to interview them, I tell them that we're not going to quote them or reveal that we spoke to them. If they choose to do so, that's their decision. And that makes people much more comfortable. And then me not being a journalist and being an academic and having a professional background, having worked at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey, people feel a little bit more, I would say, comfortable. And me not coming from a soccer background is sort of an interesting thing because I have to ask them a lot of questions because I'm, I'm not as a, a soccer expert like yourself. Um, so we did speak to many of the coaches that coach the team. Um, we spoke to uh, many of the players, top players, as well as people that were on the bench um, or that did not play very often. Um, we spoke to some players that did, did not make the team that were there during um, you know, the, the, the tryouts for the, to make the team. Um, and then what we did, I think what was different is we spoke to other um, competitors against the team. So we spoke to um, European and South American and CONCACAF coaches and players because they also have a view of what is going on with the U.S. national team that I don't think we necessarily get because most of the coverage is here on our own players and our own coaches. And that was the most fascinating to us. And then I also had some access having written the Serie A book and the Real Madrid book and many great coaches are involved in those two leagues and clubs. And, and so because of that, that, that provided a lot of um, uh, new ideas, I think, to the topic. How many interviews would you say you did total for this? Oh, well, well over 100 wow. uh, interviews. Um, and not only that, as, as you know, going through the book, which, is, which does have a lot of data in it, 
it was the interviews that actually stimulated some of that thought. So we went back and did a lot of data analysis to try to figure out if what people were telling us was true or was it just conventional wisdom. So how did you go about deciding your approach to organizing this book? Well, the, the hardest thing was um, that when we first started, everyone thought that the book was why we didn't qualify for the World Cup. Like that was the question that we we're asking. And, and, and we, we didn't want to start there, to be honest. But the interesting thing is, is when we didn't qualify in 2017, it wasn't about talent. Because if you look at the, the hex table, which the U.S. finished fifth in, in in 2017, the United States had 16 players that played in the MLS that played a total of 37,000 minutes. That was more than any other team um, in Costa Rica or Panama or whatever. Mexico obviously has – they had 11 players in their home league. Then the United States had four players in the top five leagues playing a total of 9,000 minutes. The minutes was more than any other team in the qualification as well. So it wasn't a talent issue as to why not qualifying. And that, and then we sat there and people were complaining about the U.S. hadn't made progress and everything else. I, I just also want to give people context. Going into 1994, the U.S. men's national team were 3, 5, and 23 against Mexico. Since 1994, the United States is 16, 10, and 13. So obviously some good things had come out of of uh, U.S. soccer. And I think people sort of are e- easily sort of dismissed and say everything has to be changed and it's all about talent and all these other things. So we said that that just doesn't make sense to us. So that's when we said, let's go back further and see what happened. And what we really started to focus in on is this idea of talent, um, which we, I know we'll get into later with the data. But even further than that was... We started in 1989 when the U.S. beat Trinidad and Tobago. People don't understand that when they went into that game, Trinidad and Tobago, the country, had already declared the next day was going to be a national holiday because they assumed that they would beat the United States and they were going to the World Cup. And the United States were, were, were underdogs. They hadn't scored a, a goal, actually, in a game in, in a number of games leading up to that, to that game. So they went in very much this underdog identity, which I know you is a big part of yeah. the book. And then in 2017, you everyone can remember this image where the players are being carried over the water that had uh, flooded the stadium. And um, some news outlets or media outlets put that with music that was sort of comedy music and everything else. So... And then a number of people in the media, not just myself, and former players said that the United States had become arrogant. And so how did we go from underdogs in 1989, just so happy that we made it the World Cup, where in 2017, the perception that we're giving is like, can you believe the United States has to play Trinidad and Tobago, this backwater country? That was the impression that was being given by the... um, by the pictures and the music and all this other stuff. Like, what? how did that change and why did that change? And then the other thing when we started to get into it is, is you can't get out of the what happened in 2002, which is the United States makes the, um, uh, the, some, the quarterfinals right. of a World Cup. And that, we also think, was all of a sudden became this faulty comparison because as soon as that happened, immediately there was this mentality of, well, we should almost on a straight line 
we should be making the semifinals next time right. because the general impression was, well, you know, with the guy who just was coaching a um, college just a few years ago, you know, and these guys, many of them who, who aren't really top European players, we could get to the quarterfinals. Could you imagine if we got a coach who actually had some European credentials and, you know, we had a little bit more talent, you know, we could easily make the semifinals. And I don't think people really recognize the the amount of luck and other things that went into the 2002, which was a very well-deserved, I mean, it was a great team, great mix of people from a team chemistry perspective, but there were, undoubtedly was a lot of luck um, involved in 2002. And just to prove that, you know, because you have to try to distinguish that data, the, the, the 2002 team had an expected goals of plus 3.4 in, in that World Cup. Okay, and the goalie saved two penalty right. kicks. So you essentially almost have like five goals that were not expected to be there that helped you get to the quarterfinals. What we found was is in that most World Cups, the top four finishers have a plus four or higher expected goal. So the United States had that. In all other World Cups combined for the United States, we're a minus two. Okay. So when you add them all up. So it just tells you that 2002 really was this great thing. And then the goalkeeping, just to give you a sense of the, how superb the goalkeeping was, they, this professor actually did this whole rating about uh, goalkeepers, and the U.S. goalkeeper ranked ahead of um, several top, top-rated um, uh, goalkeepers in the world. So it was just an incredible performance by the goalkeeper as well, which I think people underestimate the importance of that. Interesting. Brad Friedel, everyone. Uh, <laughs> 2002 World yeah. Cup. Um, so style of play and identity are phrases that come up a lot in this book about the U.S. men's national team. How do you see the men's national team's style of play and identity over the years? So um, many people sort of want to either forget it or this is one of the ugly truths was is that the the identity of the team um, was grit and teamwork and sacrificing each other for each other and um, and being greater than the sum of the whole, to be honest. It was never give up, being physical, um, this identity of being an underdog with a chip on their shoulders. We characterize that as some. They were trying to prove the legitimacy of soccer in the United States. That's that's how we characterize it. That was the intent. The, so that's identity. Many people say that's a style. That's not a style. It's an identity. The style generally was counterattack, compressed space, works in group defensively. Now that is an ugly truth. And the reason it's an ugly truth is, is that many, as Americans got more sophisticated in soccer and started to watch European soccer and Spain came along with tiki-taka and these great ideas of how to play possession or proactive or aggressive, that was seen as a higher form of soccer. So all of a sudden what started to happen slowly is, is the legitimacy of soccer, to be legitimate, you had to be like or play more like European. That 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 mentality started to happen. This is this change started to happen before Jurgen Klinsmann. So we in the book say Jurgen Klinsmann was a result of the change, not a cause for the change. That this had been going on. It's the same reason why you know the uh, in 1998 they they. Um, hired a uh, European coach to help them with something called Project 2010. Mm -hmm. 
And that was, you know, they didn't hire a South American coach. They didn't hire an outsider. They didn't hire an, uh, an American college coach to do it. So like that just shows you. And then, and then we, we give other examples in the book, which for example is, is the North American Soccer League, which finished in 1984, there was not one team that had FC, United, Real, SC, or Sporting in it. And in the MLS, now you have 16 of the 27 teams or whatever it is have a European style. I mean, Columbus Crew literally just changed <laughs> to Columbus SC. So if you don't have this Europeanness, so then we also give another example, which was there was no such thing as a European, there was a supporter club for U.S. soccer in 1990 and 1994. All of a sudden, we have Sam's Army and then obviously then the American Outlaws. Who else has that? Well, it's a European tradition. So in order to be legitimate, uh, you have that. The same thing with uh, broadcasters. So broadcasters were primarily American. And then all of a sudden they switched to being British, primarily broadcasters. And so this whole idea of in order to be European. Now we flipped it and we looked at the Europeans. The Europeans, don't, they don't have one team called the Lakers or the Bulls or the Celtics to get some sort of legitimacy. And you look at our NBA traditions like we, they don't sit there and have a fire coming out at the beginning of the game, and uh, you know these cheerleaders and shooting uh, t-shirts into the stadium or any of that stuff. You look at MLS games. What happens? Our players walk on the field with little kids. Well, who started that? The Europeans did. But in order for us to be legitimate, it's just a feeling that we have to do the same thing. Actually, if you go to a, a top uh, European soccer game. You know they have um, the TIFOs, the, the yeah. flags that roll out. Uh, that's what they have in, in uh, basketball games. So they took a European, they took their own football, their own football, and they put it into basketball. And we have not done the, the same. We actually then steal from Europe. So this was the evidence to show this idea of Europe was starting to permeate through for legitimacy. No, it's really interesting. I, I mean, what I've kind of always said as someone who's covered the U.S. men's national team going back to the 90s is that the best performances from U.S. men's teams at World Cups have been when they have been that what you were talking about earlier, better than the sum of their parts, hard to play against. Um, and there was like a real, and this goes even includes 2009 Confederations Cup where U.S. beat Spain and got to the final against Brazil, you know, a team that could score on the, on the counter, set pieces, things like that. And I guess one question I've got is, is it, it seems like it should be possible to me to have the, the positive attributes that we're talking about in terms of grit and better than the sum of your parts, hard to play against, and get better skill-wise, technically. And, you know, when you look at some of these young U.S. players right now uh, in their early 20s, late teens on this very promising U.S. men's national team, they do have more technical skills. It, it should be possible, right, to, to have some of both. Well, uh, I'll, I'll just throw this out because this actually, when I, when I speak to the top, top experts like yourself really understand the sport and everything. They will often raise this. And, and I, I, I point it back towards as Atletico Madrid. So Atletico Madrid, they have a lot of talent, right? I mean, they have, they have goal scoring. They have Jao Felix. They had uh, Antoine Griezmann. I mean, they have good right. players. 
Now, let me ask you, so this is one of the questions that I asked Diego Simeone. Why don't you play a proactive, aggressive style and score more goals against Leganes, Abar, whoever it is? Because you obviously have more, quote-unquote, talent to do that against them. And then against Real Madrid and Barcelona, where you may feel like you're outmanned or you're outgunned or whatever it is, and play a more defensive style. Like in the Champions League, play one way. And and I said this would also benefit you because I'm, I'm thinking about from the business aspect, because many people don't watch Atletico Madrid because they want to see goals scored. They don't want to watch a grind-out game and they can only watch one game over the weekend. So it, it benefits a club for doing that. It, it, not necessarily a national team because everyone's going to watch the national team, whatever. And he, he, he said something that was actually like quite insightful and actually helped with the book. And that's what I'm saying. Speaking to outsiders is, was helpful because he said you can't play one way against, uh, you know, a quote-unquote lower competition and then try to play another way against Real Madrid and Barcelona because you will lose your identity. And let me ask you this, has the United States lost its identity in trying to play this pro, proactive, um, aggressive, more, more, you know, I don't say aggressive, possession-based, European style, lack, for lack of a better word, because European is, a, is a, a word that really shouldn't be used, but we don't have another word, and, and has been lost by going back and forth. Because before, I would tell you, in the 1990s, the U.S. only had one way. They played, they played the same against the other CONCACAF uh, countries and the same against the top teams. And that becomes evident, actually, um, when you look at some of the, uh, the data. Because if you look at where the team actually started to lose, um, I, I don't want to say some identity, it, it, you would, it becomes very, very clear when you watch um, what happened the statistics with Jurgen Klinsmann. Because Jurgen Klinsmann, who tried to bring a more proactive, aggressive style, I think that was one of the reasons why he was hired, was to bring more what many experts call positivity. The average goals per game um, under Klinsmann was two goals per game. That is more than Bruce Arena and more than Bob Bradley. But... Against the top 20 teams, the goals per game were 0.73. And Bob Bradley and Bruce Arena were both over mm-hmm. one. And I think what happens is, is that the team starts to like, well, one day we're playing Belgium, so we're going to play this style, and then we're playing in the CONCACAF qualifiers against a team that we have more talent and we play another style. But then all of a sudden it's like, who are we? And so I think that was the perspective of having people on the outside look at America. Mm-hmm. And then you, you also mentioned another thing because we interviewed players that were on the team, the Spanish team that lost to the United mm-hmm. States. And one of the people involved with that uh, told us or asked us, you know, that team was great. That, that team beat us when we were whatever – why are they now trying to be something different than they were? And, and that, that also kind of got us thinking about, like, I don't know. Like, why? They were like, why did they change? Like, why wouldn't they just be get better, take that talent, 
put it exactly in that same style because they could have maybe scored one more goal or defended something a little bit better or whatever it was. Why do they then now want to play like how we did? And it's that then led us to this question, which is like in 1776, you know, the Americans didn't fight the British trying to be like the British. The Americans fought the British with guerrilla warfare. To me, counterattacking football is like guerrilla warfare. Um, you sort of let them in, you invite them in, and then you sort of quickly attack and you score a goal. To, there was a lot of similarities in that. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Stephen Mandis. This is the final weekend of the season in the memorable title races of Spain and France. And you can stream all the games on Fanatis live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch Copa Libertadores and top leagues from Portugal, Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. It's really interesting. I, I mean, I, I think back to when Jurgen Klinsmann was a pundit for the 2010 World Cup for ESPN. And this was obviously about a, a little over a year before he became the U.S. men's national team coach. And some of the stuff that Klinsmann said during as a pundit but was stuff that he said as he became the U.S. coach not long thereafter, which is... He thought that there still needed to be a, a U.S. style that needed to be discovered that would be representative of the culture here and, and was yet to be determined. But, you know, he said the Germans have a style, the Argentines do, the Italians do, and so forth. But it sounds a little bit like what's being said here is actually the U.S. already did have a style. And, and, yeah. and that exactly in that Jurgen didn't quite and, have and this was the and that's that's why I think people miss this is one of the ugly truths we had a style and it may have been ugly in the the way that you know people who adore tiki taka or whatever would see it but it was effective and it was who we are and this is this is something I don't think people like I would challenge some of the people that we spoke to in the upper echelons of American soccer and we would say, they would explain to us that the United States are never underdogs. The United States um, is an aggressive, proactive country. That's how we've become as economically and dominant and in sports dominant. And, you know, we've won more gold medals and more medals in the Olympics and everything else. So why in soccer would we play a counter-attacking, defensive, as many soccer would say, is a negative type game. And I said, because, and I said, that's actually a really good question. So we went and did research on that. And, and what we concluded was, in 1980, there was the miracle on ice. The 1980 Olympic hockey team beats the Russians, winds up winning the gold medal, um, and America rooted for that. America 
does love an underdog. Yes, we also love the greatness, but there is a soft spot for the underdog. That's why these movies like Rudy and Rocky and all these other things come out. Um, and this gets back to the idea of America being created in 1776 of being like an underdog against this British superpower, okay? Then the dream team gets created in 1992, and that is America. Dominant, proactive, the excellence, everything that's – that. so if you're an outsider like a um, – and what, I'm not saying this is what Jurgen Klinsmann said, but if you're an outsider and you come to America and you see you see America as great, you may not have the full appreciation of Abraham Lincoln went from a log cabin to the White House, right? There's this whole underdog um, history in America. Well, then 1994 comes along and they set the identity because no longer can Americans root for a miracle on ice because professional athletes are allowed in the Olympics. So the one team that you can root for that are the underdogs, if you want to root for an underdog as an American, is the U.S. men's soccer team. And 1994 solidified that identity. Um, and so now you had that. Now, combine that with two other unique things about soccer. One is, is over 80% of athletic males fit the size of a pro soccer player. So the average male height is five feet nine. And if you take five foot nine and you say, okay, those who would identify themselves as an athlete or athletic or whatever, they weigh 150 to 165 pounds. Well, the average soccer player is five nine, 154. So all, theoretically, all those people feel like, hey, I could become a professional soccer player. I have the physical attributes to do that. Now, if I went to the average male who's five nine, and said, do you think you have a chance of making it in the NBA? No, because the average height in the NBA is 6'7". Not only are they 6'7", 222, they have six-inch longer wingspan than their height. Then do you think you can make it in the NFL at 5'9", 150? Well, they're 6'2", 250, basically. And now they have extraordinary explosive speed um, and strength. So most people don't think that they really... NFL is not an equal opportunity sport from the physical perspective. Major League Baseball, average height and weight, 6'2", 207. And 80% of Major League Baseball players have 2015 vision. So of all the sports, soccer is the most equal opportunity sport for, for the average person. Um, also, there's, there's no dunk. There's no home run. There's no like great thing, that physical feat that, um, that, that a male, average U.S. male doesn't think that they could do. Combine that with equal opportunity in the world because we see these images of kids playing in favelas and, and on the on dirt patches in various places around the world. And so people think it's an equal opportunity sport around the world. They see themselves physically equal opportunity. The United States has this identity from 1994. And because of all that, this is what is being missed is that equal, equal opportunity is the identity of soccer in the United States. And if you don't believe that, then I said, then let me, let's look at the U.S. women's team. Because the U.S. women's team, when people say, oh, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be underdogs because we want to be champions and you can't be a champion and underdog. I'm like, really? Because the women's team are the perennial underdogs. 
And who are they fighting against? Well, they're fighting against the system. They're fighting against the soccer federation, against male domination, against equal pay. That's that's what they're fighting against. And they attract so many casual fans. They have fans around the world who root for them. And this is bizarre, right? Because they see these women as underdogs, American women as underdogs fighting the establishment. And you're like, oh, well, that's just, that's women. That's what some people told us. And I said, okay, how about Barcelona? Barcelona is the epitome of the underdog. You ever see the size of, you ever see Messi stand next to Ronaldo? Messi is the small guy who work, is compared to Ronaldo. Ronaldo is large in the establishment. Messi is the smaller guy. You have Catalonia fighting for independence and has been suppressed by the, you know, the Spanish capital and everything else, which Madrid is the capital of Spain. And, and so there's all this underlying thing. And then who has UNICEF on their jersey? Barcelona does, and that reemphasizes this identity. So it's always them fighting against the establishment, and they're great champions. And that's what we said. Like it doesn't, They're not mutually exclusive. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, lots to ask based on that. But I guess one thing I would say is you talk about equal, soccer being an equal opportunity sport globally. And yet what we've seen, in the U.S. at least, is that while there certainly are uh latino communities that uh in- include immigrants t- often who have soccer as part of their you know their their culture here in the united states a lot of them don't feel like they've been included by the us soccer federation and and the system the establishment and so there does seem to be over the years a problem that soccer isn't always an equal opportunity sport in the United States, that it's a very white sport, that it's a very middle to upper middle class sport in the U.S. What what does your data have to support or not support that? It's a, it's a complex question. Um, and so we actually studied the, the diversity of the men's national team. And the men's national team is surprisingly more diverse than what you would think in terms of mix hmm. of America. Now, this is kind of the the reason you're asking this question, which fascinates me, because when people are asking us, they'll do a comparison of the diversity of the men's national team against the U.S. population. Hmm. So they'll say, "Oh, there's X percent of this type of person, and there's less than that on the U.S. men's national team." So that's why they're not winning. And I'm like, really? Because the United States men has not won the Olympic gold medal since 1980 in hockey. Are people walking around saying, you know what, we need to build more ice stadiums, ice hockey stadiums in the middle of urban centers to find uh, Canadian immigrant people to come <laughs> to come play hockey? That's outrageous. And that also tells us how we think about soccer is in a, in a different way. So from that perspective, the, the, there is diversity on the team and lots of different people have made it on it. So the, the, the diversity is not the reason why the United States is not winning. And that, that's the purpose of our book is kind of what happened to the men's national team. We're not trying to talk about soccer generally. But when you look at it's undeniable that there are barriers for various people, either for their either backgrounds or, or socioeconomic status or whatever it is in soccer. That in many ways is the way that, and this kind of goes back to how the United States can even play soccer, is how soccer is taught primarily in the United States. So soccer is something that people take their children 
to a field and they go play soccer and then they get back in their cars and they drive back home. And that's how Americans learn soccer. Around the world, the way people learn soccer is they play in the streets in an informal way. They play in constrained spaces. No one is driving them to a soccer practice. So the best example of this would be like Kearney, New Jersey, where you had, you know, where we, you know, out of, I can't remember all the three guys, Miola, Harks, and um, I'm going to blank on the, the Peter third Vermees one now. Um, uh, there's a whole group of people that came from yeah. that northern New Jersey um, area. But anyway, so they were they were in confined spaces. They played in, in really smaller fields or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Their dads were immigrants who played semi-professional soccer. And so that it was very important in their community and to their dads. And, and they played. And, and they didn't have to drive really anywhere. I know they drove a little bit, but it was not mm-hmm. like a great distance to get to a field. And that's how they learn. And that's how people learn whatever. And then when you have many, many more touches playing that. So playing futsal, you touch the ball 600% more than you play in a regular soccer game. So that's why they develop great technical skills. So now you tell me how we think that we're going to play like Europeans or South Americans or anyone else. When they learn the game in this type of way, in, in a informal futsal street soccer type way and we learn on big grassy soccer fields so the big grassy soccer fields actually is what creates american style in many ways or determines our technical skills so the players that have superseded this are many players have some things in common which is is their their dads played at a high level in a, in a in another country or in college in the United States. And then they become, their dads you know, are very actively involved in soccer, like Christian Pulisic's dad, Gio Reda's dad or whatever. They played in college and so they teach their kids um, soccer. Um, and so those people have an advantage because that's the same way. If you look at many sports, you'll see that there's this father-son connection or family business Whatever. So that be so in college, there are many kids won't have the opportunity to pl- go play college. There's not that many college scholarships for soccer. So that in itself also creates a barrier from a socioeconomic perspective. But you'll see kids whose dads or, and moms with Josh Sargent, uh, Gio Reyna. There's there's a whole group, uh, Christian Pulisic. Both parents right. played soccer. And so they, it becomes important to their families. They teach their kids. They bring their kids to practices like Bob Bradley to bring Michael Bradley. They play against bigger, stronger, faster kids. And then they develop into players. So it just shows you this idea of the way Americans is developing players is, is that way. Yeah, really interesting. So before I forget, the, the three main guys from Kearney, John Harks, Tab Ramos, Tony Miola, uh, uh, just a, there's a cool film actually that people should see a documentary that came out about a year or two ago uh, about that story. Um, and we've mentioned Jurgen Klinsmann a couple of times here. I, I guess I, I always find it a fascinating conversation when you ask people what they thought about the U S team's performance, the men's team in the last world cup they were in, in 2014, that Klinsmann was the coach for us gets out of a very difficult group goes out to Belgium in extra time, though Belgium dominated the game. And 
in my experience, people in the soccer community here have a couple ways of looking at Jurgen Klinsmann's performance with his team in that World Cup. On the one hand, they're like, the U.S., it, it, it's more about still about results, not about performance because we're still at that stage in the development of the U.S. men's national team. They got out of a really difficult group. They got to the final 16. Wando finishes. They advance to the quarters. Um, and then the other aspect is actually look at what happened in the games themselves. And that actually wasn't a great performance in that World Cup by the U.S. team. Where do you stand on all this? Yeah, so we went back and looked at the data um, on that. So if you if you look at the 2014 World Cup, um, the it was one of the worst in terms of statistics, in terms of shots on goal, possession of the ball, everything else. So it was it, it was very low on, on statistics in comparison to teams in the 1990s even. Um, the one thing is, is that there, there was residual elements of the culture um, and the identity of the team. The, the U.S. men's national team ran further than any other team in the group stage. They, so it was, it was a remarkable effort by that team. Um, Michael Bradley ran more than any other player in the group stage. So, and just to put it in perspective, the U.S. ran on average per game two and a half miles more than than their teams, so it's like, so they they ran like uh, the next closest team actually were the champions Germany. So, um, but what I, what was evident to us was that there was a the the team was starting to lose identity, and that gets back to the point which I was saying was they played one way against certain level of competition or they're perceived, and then another way, and then the problem is is you get to the World Cup. And everyone's everyone's a top team, and then now you're in a like you're asking people just to play one way. It just doesn't work. But the biggest thing, which actually I did not appreciate this as a fan, is a couple unique things about the U.S. men's soccer team, and that is is familiarity is an incredibly important part of winning a World Cup. So when people say, "Oh, the Federation this and the Federation that," you have to remember that take a team like Germany. Um, in Germany, in terms of familiarity, um, they, they have seven of their starting 11 come from two academies. Mm-hmm. Two academies, Bayern Munich and Schalke. The majority of the team only comes from four academies, Bayern, Schalke, Borussia Dortmund, and Mainz. Okay? So they also had a core group from the previous World Cup when they won in 2014. So this familiarity, when people say like, oh, the German Federation is doing a good job, I'm like, really? Bayern Munich Academy is doing a great job. <laughs> that, that's really what's happening. And Schalke are doing a great job. And the same thing with Spain. How did Spain win in 2010? Well, familiarity. Seven players came from the Barcelona Academy, plus two other players were from the Barcelona Academy that were no longer playing at Barcelona. So that's a large core group of players. So when we look at World Cups... The one thing they have in common is familiarity. And look at who won the last World Cups. Italy, Spain, Germany, France, all are top five leagues, right? And they all have one club that can, can group together a whole bunch of players. PSG, Juventus, Bayern Munich, Barcelona. And that we're going to see a more and more common theme. And if you don't believe familiarity is important, then we give you this example. When the U.S. beat the Russians in the 1980 Olympic hockey 
game, nine players, 45% of the team, came from the University of Minnesota. And then the 20% came from Boston University. And then the women's team, when they won their first World Cup in 1991, 50% of the players came from the University of North Carolina with Anson Dorrance. So familiarity is an incredibly important part, which kind of gets actually one of the other things which, which is, is hurting the United States is MLS has a salary cap. So if you have a salary cap, then you can't get more than one or two players. The other thing is, is the, um, that I was sensitive with Jurgen Klinsmann is, is when Germany and Spain won, they had 21 of their 23 players playing in their domestic mm-hmm. league. So you can imagine there's a hierarchy that comes with that, right? Because if you go to the German national team and you play forward, and there's a there's a person that plays for Bayern Munich as forward, and you're not on the Bayern Munich team. Well, by by definition, economic definition, that player is better than you, essentially, and that is an accepted hierarchy. And generally, you're going to speak the same language. You're playing in the same league. It's the same. You, there's an understanding of each other and all this other stuff. So when Jurgen Klinsmann coached the German team, that's that's how it was. When he coached the U.S. team, there were nine different leagues represented. Mm-hmm. on that team. So you can imagine just the scouting of all of this. It's also very difficult to build a core group of players because in, in Europe, the top teams in Europe generally have usually less than 40. I think they average like 35 to 40 players in their qualification. The United States averages 60. And, and that makes sense because we have players playing in Mexico and college and all types of leagues in Europe and everywhere. And so it's hard to develop a core group of players that become familiar with each other. So these are significant disadvantages that the United States has. So even as the talent is rising in the United States, many of these players have never really played together until they show up at this thing. But you have to remember the Bayern Munich players are playing together all season long. And that we actually think is one of the biggest competitive disadvantages of the U.S. team. Now, before the United States actually had familiarity, it was called the University of Virginia, UCLA, and IMG. And that is another thing that has changed over time. That's all fascinating stuff. It, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe someday it wouldn't be nice to have a little bit of what like the Dutch national team had with AC Milan or Barcelona over the years where a lot of their top players played with each other on a regular basis. You know, you know, cause we're, you know, the Dutch league, it's not quite the same thing as like if you're Germany and you have Bayern having so many of the top teams. But, you know, I see, you know, these U.S. players now playing for top Champions League teams. Um, you know, in most cases, they're not playing on the same Champions League team together. And so maybe eventually that uh, that might be able to happen. Like we are seeing this young emerging group of American men's players playing for the top clubs in Europe and and being influential now. Um, And I'm wondering, is that reflective of, of talent getting better? And, and what, what have you got from the data that shows anything about talent over the years? Um, So this was the most, one of the most surprising things to us. So um, we measure talent by the number of players in the top five leagues and the number of minutes that they played in the top five leagues. So we said that was, and there's some flaws with that, but we thought that was the best way to look at it. 
And as you can imagine, in 1990, there were no players in the top five leagues or known minutes. And then by 1994, there was one. And by 98, there was five. And in 2002, there were eight. In 2006, there was eight. And then in 2010, there were 12. And then all of a sudden, you see a decline. So by the time that 2017, and in 2014, there were 10. By the time 2017 starts, there's four players in the top five leagues. Um, Now, some people argue, well, some of the players came back to MLS. So we looked into that. So we said, okay, yes, there were two players of of consequence that came back to the United States that were under the age of 30. Um, If they were over the age of 30, we're like their past peak age performance. So if you add the two, instead of being four, you're at six. So you're still a decline um, from 10 in 2014 and 12 in 2010. And so you, why was there this decline? So we, we tried to figure out why, what was happening, what was it MLS? We showed that it really wasn't MLS. It was, so what we figured out was, is it was, there was a boom that happened in talent from the, that resulted from the 1994 World Cup. So children that were eight to 12 years old who watched the World Cup, they reached peak age in 2006 to 2010. And then that started to drop off. And that's why you see like a a generational issue Mm -hmm. there. And what was not there to support the uh, talent continuing was there was no economic incentives for people to develop, to identify and develop talent in the United States. The economic incentive in the United States was primarily parents who said they want to get their children into a more selective college or college Mm -hmm. scholarship. So that, that's an economic incentive. But there's no way that the parents could outspend the top clubs around the world as to what they were spending in their academies and having people live in the academies and play together all the time and everything else. So the U.S. didn't have a support system to continue that with economics. So because if you're an MLS club, if I spent all this time and energy developing a player – they would either sign to go play college or they wouldn't want to sign a professional contract or they wouldn't sign a professional contract, they'd go to Europe and I would get nothing. Well, that changed in 2019. So in 2019, you had this, um, all of a sudden, the United States would start to accept solidarity payments and training compensation. So every time a transfer fee is paid for a player, the teams that developed them would get paid. And that economic system economic incentive system existed around the world except the United States. So that was a major, major change. And that is what, in in our opinion, is going to drive the continuation of more talented players being developed and being sent to Europe. Um, And then there's another change that will happen with familiarity, which is our guess is is that what is going to happen is that a few of the academies will wind up becoming the Borussia Dortmunds, the Bayern Munichs or whatever. So they're, they're going to be known for developing U.S. talent so that this, this uh, familiarity will come from two, three, four academies, and you'll see that. Now, many people come to us and say, oh, America is like, we're going to win the World Cup easily in 2026, home field advantage, we have talent, we have players playing on the top five leagues. And we said, okay, well, in 2020, um, we had eight players in the top five leagues. Um, playing a total of um, something like thir- uh, I think something like thirteen thousand minutes. So you have to remember, in twenty ten, we had twelve players playing in the top five leagues, playing a total of twenty three thousand minutes. So even in twenty twenty, 
we had less players, fewer players playing fewer minutes. Now they're in larger profile clubs, so that's good, good news. The other good news is that many more of them are playing in the Champions League because they're in the top clubs. They're obviously not getting the same number of minutes necessarily. But we have five players last year who played in the Champions League, Europa League, whatever. And in 2010, it was three. The other big advantage is the average age of those players was 21, where in 2010, it was 29. So it does show like there is something happening. But for people that are getting their expectations up to a really high level, we're saying like, hold on for a little bit. And the, the, the other data behind that is, is if you look for this European Champions League, which we're going to have for the first time in Americans in the finals. So this is the first time America's ever had somebody in the Champions League final. The United States ranks 25th in terms of the country that has the number of players in the Champions League. So we had nine players um, in the Champions League this year. Just to put in perspective, France has 87. <laughs> France, the, 87 players. Okay, Spain, 84. Brazil, 66. Germany, 64. Italy, 55. I mean, I'm going down. Greece has 14. Uh-huh. Senegal has 12. Okay, so you're, you're go- Morocco has 11. And the United States has 9. So we're 25th. Now, I switch it to number of minutes because I say, well, some of these countries like Russia or whatever, they or Turkey, they have domestic leagues that qualify. So let's look at the number of minutes. The number of minutes, the United States ranks 28th in number of minutes. So, and Champions League is incredibly important. This is something we didn't uh, recognize, but when we interviewed um, some of the European um, players and coaches, they, they said that Mexico is at a, a large disadvantage um, relative to um, European countries because many of their players do not play in the Champions League. And so by playing at the top clubs in the Champions League, you are now playing every three days. And so your body mentally, physically is getting used to that type of calendar, which is what happens in the World Cup. And they said that that's very important. And so many of them believe, this is their belief, that Mexico has not gotten past the round of 16 because of either talent development through that or physically they have not gotten themselves in, in, into a situation where, I don't know, they're, they're up for it. Um, and when you look at the data, that's true. The, the Mexico has gone to the quarterfinals twice in their history. Both times were home field right. advantage, which, which actually we, we go through this whole advantage of home field advantage and their stadium, the right, altitude. Right provides a, uh, a, a huge advantage. It's interesting because there's certain countries where like Mexico, the U.S. at times, Russia, where sometimes there's a players, like national team players from those countries can make above market wages by staying in their own nation's league. We've seen it with MLS, with Michael Bradley and Clint Dempsey and Josie Altador making above market salaries. Uh, the Mexican league... Definitely similar cases, and we haven't seen many Russian national team players leave Russia. They they tend to stay in the in the Russian league. So I I do find that interesting, those phenomenon as well. Um, we're winding down here with Stephen Mandis, and I'm really enjoying this interview. Um, I want to ask you about Greg Berhalter because he's the current coach of the U.S. men's national team. He didn't have his team much in 2020 
due to COVID, but there's obviously a lot of really important games coming for Greg Berhalter with his national team. We're going to see probably the A squad with his Nations League Final Four in a couple of weeks. And then Gold Cup, probably not with the A squad, completely at least. And then the stuff that matters most. September is the start of 14 games of World Cup qualifying over five FIFA windows. And that's how Greg Berhalter is going to be measured, at least if until he gets to the World Cup. What's your sense of Greg Berhalter so far from from digging into into what he's done? To, to be honest, I don't think there's. I think it's evolving, yeah. and I don't know if there's really enough data. Um, I I will tell you that um, I think it's it's great that they hired an American coach first of all, um, and somebody that knew the culture of the the team and the history of the team. And I think that was an important um, uh, identification that, that that's that's important. No foreign coach has ever won right. the World Cup. They've gotten to two finals, 58 and 78. But but this, ident- this idea of understanding the culture and the language and the et cetera is very important. Um, but what I, but there there is inevitably Craig, in, in our view, was hired in part because he played in Europe. He had a license. He got his license to coach in Europe, and so he has this. This once again, it's this gravitational pull of Europe. I'm not saying that's the conscious reason, the only reason. I'm just saying I think in the back of people's minds that that, and and maybe that's also ne- they felt like that's necessary because many players are playing in Europe, and so that having that understanding is this thing. But the one thing is, is I there's no question that Greg was influenced by. Johan Cruyff and a, a Dutch system. He's he's publicly stated how he admires Pep Guardiola. So in this idea of tiki taka or, or possession based play from the back style, which is what he had used at Columbus. Um, the one thing is is I do see a little bit of an inclusion of a high press in some recent games, and that could be the modern version of the counterattack working groups. And I think that that actually is, is a interesting strategy because if you go speak to Anson Dorrance, who coached the women's team in 1991, he's, he's publicly stated that he did not feel that the women did have the talent to win the World Cup in 1991. And so what they did was they were the first women's team to have a high press. And the reason they did that was they didn't want the other team to have possession and to show their talent and their skill level and tactical acumen ahead of the U.S. women. So they said, oh, if we high press them and they lose the ball in those bad spaces, we can score goals. And that was the that was the way they were compensating. And they were like, we have these athletes. We have a we have a depth of team maybe that that others may not have. And that's what they use. And I'm kind of. I, I can't wait to watch this U.S. team, not just because I think that the guys are are incredibly like socially active, and I think they're incredibly talented. They're obviously in these great teams, so I'm, and I just think they're like really good people. So I'm like really excited for them as like developing through this whole process as as not just soccer players, but as like people and 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 citizens. But I'm actually also curious to see the development of is. The high press work in teams, the new counterattack, because of like you mentioned, we have a little bit more talent 
now to be able to do that. But I think that the playing from the back um, and, and trying to do it from that way had mixed like success. the Mexico game. It's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, and it is very difficult to implement. I mean, that's one of the things when we spoke to Spanish players was you can see Spain has not, besides the 2010 World Cup, there's been a yeah. drop off. And the reason is, is because their players that were excellent in that style or especially in the midfield had mm-hmm. aged. Um, and then it becomes very difficult to play without elite, elite talent there. And as we mentioned, the United States, they don't grow up playing like that. And so that's not an American style. So I, I, I question that. The high press thing, I think, is just going to be fascinating to watch. And I'm really, I'm, I, I actually do believe that Greg's just like a really good person and cares about the players. And I think like Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride and these guys, like they, they know the culture. I mean, Brian McBride, the photo of the blood yeah. coming off of his face is, is, is the image of the identity of the men's team. So I think there's a lot there. Um, I, I'm concerned that the expectations are really high and we try to show you the data to show that maybe it's, it's you know, we should hold off and let people develop a little bit and have familiarity. Um, I guess just for a last question here, this has been great stuff. I appreciate it. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that's you think would be important to mention, whether it's anything counterintuitive that you found or, or any other topic? Um, I, there's a couple of... Uh, things when people talk about World Cups and so one of the things we want to settle was the debate the most difficult US men's national team group was in 2014 I asked people which one was the next most difficult and we were looking at the data of the number of players and the number of minutes in the top five leagues as well as their rankings in the group stage and the next one actually was 1994 So 2014 was the hardest, 1994 was the second hardest. Another another interesting statistic. In 2002, the U.S. men's national team were 90 to 1 odds to win the World Cup. In 2006, it was 100 to 1. In 2014, it was 150 to 1. So part of that is maybe we're not progressing as, as much as on a relative basis, um, but also the, the group stage. I think the 2014, 150 to 1, people did not expect to run the group. So t- I think the 2014 team deserves a lot of credit, actually. Um, as I, as, this is another interesting thing that we learned. Less than 10% of the teams who lose their first match advance in the World Cup. So if you draw, it makes the odds 50-50. But that first match is critically important. So who you're matched up with in that first of your, gr- of your group makes a lot of uh, uh, makes a huge impact so it's it you may have an easy group but if you play the toughest team the right the seated team first it puts you in a very difficult position and what we found was and it's not just true of the united states but other countries is when they lose the first match all of a sudden people get defensive the media is on top of them they had worked all these this time to lose and now, like, then they start pressing or doing things that are outside of their system in the second match to try to score a goal and make sure they win. And that inevitably loses, <laughs> lends itself to a loss, which was interesting. And then the other thing was a home field advantage, that uh, every host has advanced to the knockout stage except for South Africa in 2010. And so home field advantage has an enormous um, value in World Cups. 
And as we said in Mexico, it's kind of interesting is that um, some people quantified the stadium in Mexico City um, as to how much an advantage you get for every meter of elevation above sea level. And so the forget, putting aside the effect of the crowd influencing referees, just the, the actual above sea, uh, sea level, there's a 0.25, a quarter goal advantage by playing at that um, level of elevation. So which we found was a fascinating thing, which led us to question whether or not the United States should uh, should have some sort of stadium in some peculiar place to make it difficult for, for competitors for qualifications. The book is called What Happened to the USMNT? The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. You guys should read it. It's terrific. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Stephen Mandis, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Stephen Mandis as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. 